To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Scottsdale is an affluent town in Arizona. Nothing ever happens here. But in June 2018, in the middle of hot desert heat, 911 received a hysterical phone call. Emergency personnel arrived to help the unresponsive woman who's been shot. During the madness, detectives follow the trail of blood. The blood leads to a legal office. Inside, there's another victim. The quiet town of Scottsdale ensues in a panic because there's an active shooter on the loose. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 131, The Scottsdale Shootings. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, Your support helps me find new exciting cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, produce and edit this weekly show. As a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, shout-outs and episodes, priority on case suggestions, and access to weekly bonus episodes. To support Forensic Tales, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales or simply click the link in the show notes. You can also help support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's get to this week's story. At 2.15 p.m. on June 1, 2018, police in downtown Scottsdale, Arizona, received a frantic 911 call. A female bus driver told the police that a woman covered in blood had run up to her, The woman told her she needed help and to call the police. The bus driver said that she was parked in the area after taking a group of people to the park. She was waiting there when the woman ran up to her. Within minutes, Scottsdale police officers and paramedics arrived at the location where the bus driver made the call. When they arrived, they found a woman lying on the ground covered in blood. Initially, it wasn't clear what had happened to her but the woman was injured and no longer responsive. Had she been in some type of accident, maybe a car crash? Had she been shot or stabbed? No one knew. Scottsdale police also didn't know who this woman was. She didn't have any identification on her, so all they knew was that it looked like she came from work because she was wearing business clothes, but that was it. 
According to the bus driver, the woman had asked her for help, but while she was on the phone with 911, the woman became unresponsive. Paramedics immediately transported the woman to the hospital. But when she arrived in the emergency room, there wasn't anything doctors could do. Her injuries were too extensive and she had lost too much blood. Within minutes of arriving at the hospital, she was pronounced dead, shot, and killed. Back at the scene, Scottsdale police quickly got to work trying to figure out what had happened to this woman. They discovered a trail of blood coming from a local business. The blood led police to the office of Burt Feldman and Griner Law Firm, a Scottsdale-based law firm specializing in family law litigation and mediation. A dozen Scottsdale police officers made their way inside of the family law firm. As soon as they got inside, they found more blood. Then they found a second victim. Lying on the floor in the middle of the office, Another female victim covered in blood. Just like the other woman, she was shot and killed. Scottsdale police had two homicides on their hands. Both of their victims were female, and both had been shot and killed. Since this happened in downtown Scottsdale, in the middle of a busy business area, every available officer and detective was called to the scene. Two people were already dead, and they had no idea if they had a serial killer on the loose. Investigators' first objective was to identify their two female victims. If they were going to find out who shot them, they needed to find out who they were. So officers began in the law firm. They searched the desks, trying to find any personal items like a purse or a wallet that could identify them. Next, they looked at framed photos on desks to see if any of them matched either of the women. And that's where they found it. The women were Valeria Sharp and Laura Anderson. 48-year-old Valeria and 49-year-old Laura both worked as paralegals at the law firm where they were shot and killed. Valeria Sharp was the one who made it outside to the bus driver, while Laura Anderson was shot and killed near her desk. Both Valeria and Laura had been shot multiple times in the head and in the chest. Because they both worked for the law firm, the police's first assumption was that the person responsible had some sort of connection to the firm. They had to be the reason why someone targeted this particular location. Maybe a disgruntled former client or perhaps an upset employee. While detectives searched for a possible motive for the shooting, forensic investigators collected evidence. In most shootings, the priority is to find shell casings. Finding shell casings is essential because they will help tell investigators what type of gun was used. Casings can also tell the police if multiple guns were used. Investigators also looked for blood evidence fingerprints, and any other type of physical evidence that could have been left behind by the shooter. But investigators weren't able to find much in terms of forensic evidence. Whoever did this, whoever shot and killed Valeria and Laura, did so without leaving anything behind. The only trail investigators found were a few shell casings from a gun. They were immediately collected and sent to the lab to see if any evidence could be lifted from them. 
they also wanted to figure out what type of gun was used. Within hours of Valeria and Laura's murders, the Scottsdale Police Department received a phone call. The call came from another police department less than 15 miles away in Phoenix, Arizona. Officers from the Phoenix Police Department had heard about the Scottsdale shootings. They wondered if they could be connected to a shooting that they had the day before. Phoenix police officers told Scottsdale officers that a well-known forensic psychiatrist was gunned down outside of his office at 5.20 p.m. the day before on Thursday, May 31st. He was identified as 59-year-old Stephen Pitt. Stephen Pitt was not only well-known around Phoenix, Arizona, but he was also well-known around the country. Throughout his career as a forensic psychiatrist, he worked as a professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. He had consulted on many famous criminal cases, including John Benet Ramsey, the Kobe Bryant sexual assault case, the mass shooting at Columbine High School, and the Deer Creek Middle School shooting. Stephen Pitt was also known for his involvement in identifying the baseline killer who had raped and murdered several women in Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix officers told investigators in Scottsdale that Stephen Pitt was shot outside of his Phoenix office around 5.20 p.m. When they heard about the Scottsdale shootings, they wondered if they could be related. Besides his teaching job and work on high-profile cases, Stephen Pitt frequently testified against people in court. Local prosecutors in Arizona would often call him to testify against criminal defendants. So police in Phoenix wondered if that had anything to do with his murder. But if that suspicion was true, what was the connection to Laura Anderson and Valeria Sharp in Scottsdale, two seemingly innocent paralegals? Without anything else to go on, Scottsdale investigators thought that the two shootings might be related. So the two police departments started working together. If it was the same shooter in both incidents, they had no idea how many more victims there could be. So they needed answers fast. Detectives from Scottsdale and Phoenix needed to find evidence that connected their cases. So they sat down and compared notes. They discovered that the shooter used the same caliber gun in both incidents. They couldn't determine if the same gun was used, but they were very similar. And a similar brand of ammunition was used in both. This was enough evidence for the departments to work together and operate under the assumption that they were looking for the same suspect or suspects. Scottsdale and Phoenix investigators sent the shell casings to the crime lab. Lab technicians swabbed them for any possible traces of DNA. Fortunately, they got a DNA sample from both crime scenes. It was only a small amount of DNA, but both samples generated a full DNA profile. Technicians also discovered that the DNA from both scenes matched each other. They came from the same person. By 9 o'clock p.m. that night, 
police knew that whoever shot and killed Stephen Pitt the day before also shot and killed the two paralegals in Scottsdale. The Scottsdale Crime Lab took the DNA sample collected from the shell casings and ran the profile through CODIS, our national DNA database, to see if they could identify a match. When a DNA profile is submitted to CODIS, the profile is compared against other profiles in the system. If there's a match, you get a hit. So investigators anxiously awaited the results. If they got a hit, they would have their shooter and then would be able to track him down and stop the killings. But when the results did finally come back, Scottsdale and Phoenix investigators were devastated. The profile didn't match any known person in CODIS. At the exact moment investigators learned they didn't get a match on the DNA, Scottsdale police received another 911 call. Another shooting. A woman called 911 to report that she thought her boyfriend shot himself. She said her boyfriend was supposed to come home around 5 to 6 p.m. earlier that night. But she became worried when he didn't come home from work. So she drove out to his office to see if he was still working. There, she discovered that the front door was unlocked and that her boyfriend was lying on the floor covered in blood. Although she didn't see a gun, she thought he had shot himself, so she called 911. Scottsdale police arrived at the office just before midnight, the same day the paralegals were shot. It was an office only five miles away from the law firm. When they got there, they found a man lying on the floor. He had been shot twice in the head. But this was no suicide. He was executed. He was identified as 72-year-old Marshall Levine. Marshall was killed in the office where he worked as a counselor and a psychologist. Because he normally returned home between 5 and 6 p.m., the police theorized that he'd been shot sometime between 5 and midnight. But other than that, the police didn't have much. They weren't sure if Marshall Levine's murder was even connected to the two paralegals. This case was a little bit different. Stephen Pitt was well-known, and the law firm where Laura and Valeria were killed was in a popular downtown area. Marshall Levine's office sat in a quiet part of town. Besides his office, there really wasn't much around. But investigators did find something interesting. Inside Marshall Levine's office, investigators found two 40 caliber casings on the ground. They were very similar type casings found in the other two crime scenes. But they weren't the same brand, only the same caliber. Other Arizona police departments started helping Phoenix and Scottsdale comb through evidence. Across three separate crime scenes, seemingly insurmountable evidence to comb through. They were also receiving hundreds upon hundreds of tips from the public. To help vet through some of these tips, the police set up a tip line. Some of the tips were good, while others didn't seem to help much. People were calling the tip line to report their ex-husband as the shooter. 
Others called in about a weird neighbor of theirs. Each tip the police received was thoroughly investigated and vetted. But although they received hundreds of promising tips, none of these tips led the police to their shooter, and none of them tied all three shootings together. One piece of evidence found was security footage from Phoenix. A security camera near Stephen Pitt's office in Phoenix captured a suspicious vehicle in the area around the time of the shooting. The vehicle was an older model, gold-colored Mercedes. Although they couldn't see who the driver was and they couldn't read the license plate number, the police considered this their most significant piece of evidence so far, and they needed to find out who the driver was of this mysterious gold Mercedes. And why they were driving around Stephen Pitt's office at the same time of the shooting. Investigators created a list of people who owned an older model gold Mercedes in Phoenix and Scottsdale. Unfortunately, the list wasn't as helpful as they initially thought. Hundreds of people between the two cities owned a gold-colored Mercedes, so any of them could be their shooter. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes, This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. On Sunday morning, the police received another promising tip. A woman named Connie Jones called and knew who the shooter was. She said it was her ex-husband, Dwight Jones. Connie Jones told investigators that she and her son were watching the news. After hearing about each location, Connie instantly thought of her ex-husband. Dwight Jones had a connection to all three of the shooting locations. Connie reported to investigators that she and Dwight got divorced years earlier in 2009, and Elizabeth Feldman was her attorney during the divorce. Bert Feldman and Griner was the law firm where Laura Anderson and Valeria Sharp worked. So Connie's divorce attorney, Elizabeth Feldman, was one of the firm's founding attorneys. Connie also said that Dwight had a connection to Stephen Pitt in Phoenix. One part of their divorce included child custody arrangements. Connie and Dwight had a son together, and Stephen Pitt was the forensic psychiatrist who evaluated Dwight during the hearings. Then there was Marshall Levine, the third victim. According to Connie, as they watched the news on TV covering the shootings, 
Her son said he recognized Marshall Levine's office. He had been to that building to see a therapist with his dad, Dwight. It wasn't only Dwight's connection to all three locations that interested the police. Connie told investigators that her ex-husband drove an older model gold Mercedes, the same type of car caught in the Phoenix surveillance camera around Stephen Pitt's office. By Monday morning, Scottsdale and Phoenix detectives had their first suspect in the shootings, 56-year-old Dwight Jones. Connie and Dwight Jones met while Connie was on summer break from college. He was 22 and she was 18. Their relationship was straight out of the movies. Dwight was the older bad boy and Connie was the younger good girl. But somehow they stayed together. Connie and Dwight got married relatively quickly and Connie became pregnant with their son. They decided to move to Arizona where Connie got a job in radiology. Dwight, on the other hand, never held a steady job, and the small family relied solely on Connie's radiology job. Not long after their son was born, Connie and Dwight's marriage started falling apart. According to Connie, Dwight became controlling and abusive not only towards her, but also towards their son. In one particular fight, Dwight allegedly threatened to take their son to Mexico so that Connie could no longer see him. In another incident, Dwight locked himself in their house and threatened to kill himself until the police were called. The abuse got so bad that Connie decided to leave, and in 2008, she took their son and filed for divorce. Soon after that, she hired Elizabeth Feldman. After Connie left, Dwight moved into the extended stay in Scottsdale. They were involved in a messy divorce and custody battle for the next year and a half. According to Connie, on multiple occasions, Dwight threatened to kill her and their son. One time, Connie said that Dwight told her that he was going to kill their son to, quote, torture me for the rest of my life, end quote. Although Dwight had a history of abuse, the judge overseeing the divorce granted Dwight visitation rights with their son. However, during one of these visits, Dwight allegedly abducted the boy and locked him inside his hotel room. It wasn't until the police arrived that he finally let their son go back with his mother. After this incident, the judge modified his visitation to only allow supervised visits and he was also ordered to pay $250 a month in child support. By 2009, their divorce was finalized, and Connie was finally moving on with her life. That is, until she saw the news coverage on TV about the shootings and decided to call the police. Now that the police had a name, Dwight Jones, they needed to find him. If he was the shooter... Four people were already dead, and there was no way to know if he was going to shoot and kill anymore. So they needed to act fast and track him down as quickly as possible. Investigators learned that he was staying at a local hotel in Scottsdale. Since his divorce from Connie, he's been living in and out of hotels in the area. 
By Monday afternoon, the police got their first sighting of Dwight. They saw him driving in his old gold Mercedes near his hotel. Once they found him, a couple of officers began following him. They were careful not to be spotted and made sure that he didn't leave their sight. The police watched him stop at a few grocery stores and convenience stores as they followed him. He then stopped at a McDonald's drive through before heading to a friend's house. He stayed at the friend's house for around two hours and then headed to another McDonald's. At the second McDonald's is where the police saw Dwight park his car and get out. Then they watched him as he dumped several items into a dumpster before driving away. While a few officers stayed with Dwight, another couple officers searched the dumpster. They wanted to see what he was trying to hide. Inside the dumpster, they found something huge, a small caliber pistol. Although it was extremely suspicious that the officers witnessed Dwight trying to dispose of a gun, it wasn't the same type of pistol used in the shootings. So police still didn't have anything solid linking Dwight to the murders. The next thing investigators did was look at Dwight's cell phone records. They hoped his cell phone records could paint a picture about his whereabouts on the day of the shootings. If his cell phone pinged in the same area at the same time the shootings took place, they could possibly have enough evidence to make an arrest. The cell phone records recently placed Dwight in a weird area of Fountain Hills, Arizona. This particular neighborhood was unknown to the police. Fountain Hills wasn't the location of any of the shootings. They also discovered that Dwight had placed several phone calls to a landline in Fountain Hills, and cell phone towers in the area placed him in the neighborhood at the same time of the phone calls. The police decided to send a few officers to the Fountain Hills residence to check on them. If Dwight was their shooter, could those people inside that Fountain Hills home be his most recent victims? When the officers showed up at the house, they knocked on the door, but it was locked and no one answered. So they knocked again, this time a bit louder, but still no answer. The officers decided to use a ladder to climb up to the house's second floor and look through a window to see if anyone was inside. When they got inside, another shocking discovery, yet another gunshot victim. The discovery of the body gave the police enough probable cause to break entry into the house. Once officers got inside, they didn't just find one gunshot victim, they found two. It was 72-year-old Byron Thomas and his wife, 70-year-old Mary Simmons. They were both the homeowners and had recently gotten married. Although the police knew Dwight's cell phone pinged in the area around the residence, they didn't find anything inside the house that linked Mary Simmons and Byron Thomas to the earlier shootings. They didn't find any forensic evidence or shell casings. But still, investigators had a strong hunch that Dwight Jones was somehow involved. And if their hunch was correct, 
that means that there are now four different crime scenes and six innocent people dead. Scottsdale and Phoenix investigators sat down with prosecutors to see if they had enough for an arrest. Based on what they uncovered, the cell phone data, and Connie's story, they felt pretty good about Dwight being their shooter. But prosecutors told the police there wasn't enough. All the police had was circumstantial evidence. The cell phone data simply put Dwight near Mary Simmons and Byron Thomas's house. It didn't mean he was the shooter. Yes, he had a connection to all of the previous shooting victims, but there wasn't enough physical evidence to arrest him. Prosecutors told the police they needed more, hard, physical, or forensic evidence linking him to all of the shootings. When scientists pulled the DNA profile from the shell casings at the first two shootings, the profile didn't match anyone in CODIS. But now that they had a possible suspect, Dwight Jones. So the next step was to compare the profile to Dwight's DNA. To get Dwight's DNA, the police got creative. They turned to familial DNA. Familial DNA testing allows scientists to compare DNA profiles among family members. As family members, we share part of our DNA with our relatives. Mothers and fathers pass along their genetic profiles to their children, and that process continues for generations. In criminal investigations, familial DNA testing is helpful because it can identify potential suspects by first identifying relatives of their suspect. It can also help police identify a suspect whose DNA isn't in CODIS or any other DNA database. But conducting familial DNA testing isn't always easy. Sometimes it requires permission from the family members to provide their DNA samples. And not everyone is willing to do that, even if the police suspect a family member is involved in a crime or is considered a suspect in an investigation. But in this case, the police had Dwight's ex-wife and son who were more than willing to cooperate. Connie was the one who called the police in the first place to report Dwight. So the police contacted Connie and their son to provide a DNA sample. If they had their DNA, they could conduct a familial DNA testing to determine if the DNA found on the casings was a familial match. Scottsdale detectives met up with Connie and her son and collected DNA swabs from both of them. The samples were then transported back to Scottsdale Crime Lab to be compared with the unknown DNA profile from the shell casings. The lab performed a paternity index with the samples. The paternity index, or PI, is the genetic odds of an alleged father being the biological father of a child. A PI is calculated for each genetic locus and represents the likelihood that the alleged father contributed the paternal alleles versus an unrelated, untested, random man in the population. Investigators completed this process to discover if the unknown DNA was a paternal match to Dwight and Connie's son. 
if they were a paternal match, that would mean it was indeed Dwight's DNA on the shell casings found at two crime scenes. When the PI was completed, the results were conclusive. Dwight's DNA profile perfectly matched the DNA recovered on the shell casings. Before the police secured an arrest warrant, Connie called saying that her ex-husband started posting weird videos online. Connie said Dwight was posting all of these videos on YouTube saying how Connie and the system ruined his life. The system was out to get him. In some of the videos posted on YouTube, Dwight was talking while wearing a white porcelain mask covering most of his face. The police logged onto YouTube and discovered that Dwight had recently posted the videos within the last few weeks. They found it odd that Dwight continued talking about his divorce from Connie even after all these years. Their divorce was finalized almost 10 years earlier, yet he continued to blame Connie for everything and made video after video about how she ruined his life and how the world and the system were out to get him. But in the videos, Dwight made no mention or reference to the shootings. The police now had enough to arrest Dwight in connection to the shootings. They knew about his connection to all of the victims, and now they had forensic evidence. His DNA found at two of the crime scenes. Scottsdale and Phoenix police officers, alongside the SWAT team, assembled to go to Dwight's hotel and arrest him. They knew they were dealing with an extremely violent and dangerous person. They had no idea how he would react after finding out he was being arrested for shooting and killing six people. The police also knew that he was likely heavily armed. When the police and SWAT team arrived at Dwight's hotel, they quickly got to work evacuating all of the hotel guests. They went one by one to each door and evacuated everyone inside. When it came time to confront Dwight, they didn't want anyone else inside the hotel. Sometime while the police were evacuating hotel guests, Dwight caught on to them. He saw the police and SWAT outside his hotel room, and he knew that they were coming for him. A few minutes later, the police and SWAT heard two to three gunshots come from inside Dwight's hotel room. Police realized the moment had come. Anytime you're dealing with an active shooter situation, the police tactics are critical. How the police decide to act in an active shooter situation determines whether innocent people live or die. Dwight could shoot and kill more people if they didn't act fast enough. If they acted too fast, they risk putting their police officers in unreasonable danger. In this situation, the SWAT team decided they wouldn't enter Dwight's hotel room. They knew he had weapons, and they just heard several gunshots. They thought their most strategic plan was to wait for him to come out. To get him to come out of his hotel room, the police threw several containers of tear gas into the room. They hoped that the tear gas would make Dwight uncomfortable enough to leave the room and come outside. But after they threw several containers inside the hotel room and Dwight still didn't come out, they had to devise a new plan. Next, 
Police used a drone. They flew the drone as close as possible to Dwight's hotel room just outside of the window. Once the drone was close enough, they could finally see inside the room. But what they saw was devastating to their investigation. Dwight Jones shot and killed himself. Inside the hotel room, the police and SWAT team found Dwight lying on his bed from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He turned the gun on himself instead of being taken into custody for the shootings. The police and SWAT team conducted a full search of the hotel. Inside his room, they found a duffel bag containing hundreds of rounds of ammunition. They also found several guns, including small caliber pistols similar to the ones used in the shootings. In addition to the pistols, they also found an AR-15 assault rifle. Inside of the closet, Dwight had several articles of clothing that replicated a police uniform. He had a shirt that said police along the front, as well as a police hat and fake badge. Once the police searched the entire hotel room, they had no question that if they hadn't gone there to arrest him that day, he would continue his killing spree. And there was no way of knowing how many more innocent people he would have shot and killed. Inside that hotel room, he had hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Within 96 hours, Dwight Jones shot and killed six people. His first victim was 59-year-old forensic psychiatrist Stephen Pitt. The police suspect Dwight targeted Pitt because of his involvement in the custody hearings. During Connie and Dwight's divorce, Stephen Pitt evaluated Dwight to determine if he was fit to have visitation or custody rights with his son. The police suspect Dwight targeted Pitt because his testimony caused him to lose visitation with his son. Dwight's second and third victims were 48-year-old Valeria Sharp and 49-year-old Laura Anderson. Both Laura and Valeria worked as paralegals at the law firm representing Connie during their divorce. It's speculated that Dwight went to the law firm that day to shoot and kill whoever was inside. Although Connie's attorney, Elizabeth Feldman, wasn't there, Valeria and Laura were, so Dwight decided to kill them instead. Later that same afternoon, Dwight drove five miles away to the office of 72-year-old Marshall Levine. At the time, Marshall Levine was subletting his office from a woman who provided counseling services to Dwight and Connie's son during the divorce. Although Marshall Levine had never met Dwight or his son, Dwight decided to target him that night simply because he was in the office. When Connie and her son watched the news about the shootings, Connie's son immediately recognized the office building because that's where he went to counseling. Lastly, Dwight shot and killed 70-year-old Mary Simmons and 72-year-old Byron Thomas. To this day, it's unclear why Dwight targeted this elderly couple, and the police have struggled to identify a motive. 
The day after Dwight Jones shot and killed himself, the Scottsdale Police Department and the Phoenix Police Department held a joint press conference. At the press conference, Connie Jones expressed her condolences to the victims. In a report by the New York Times, Connie said, quote, I have feared for my safety for the past nine years. I cannot express the emotions I feel for the innocent families touched by this senseless act of violence, end quote. Reporters asked Scottsdale Assistant Police Chief Rich Salvin the motive for the shootings, and he explained that it was impossible to fully understand why Dwight Jones did what he did. Chief Salvin said, quote, taking the lives of innocent people should never make sense, end quote. In 96 hours, Dwight Jones shot and killed six innocent people. He selected his targets who felt had wronged him over the years, stemming from his 2009 divorce. He was careful not to leave behind any physical or forensic evidence linking him to the shootings. But he forgot to wipe down the shell casings when he loaded the bullets inside his gun. And when the police recovered those casings, they found his DNA on them. But what set Dwight Jones off? His divorce was close to 10 years ago. Was it drugs, mental illness, or just a cold-blooded killer on a spree? We may never know. To share your thoughts on the 2018 Scottsdale shootings, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. To check out photos from the case, be sure to head to our website, forensictales.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. In addition, for supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or spreading the good word about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., David B., Nicole G., Paula G., Christine B., Karen D., Nancy H., Sherry A., and Jamie Y. 
If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. Your support means the world to me. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. 